I'm Doug Fullington. I'm manager of audience education here at PMB. This is our second program of the season. It's all premiere because they are all premieres. Um, the first ballet on the program, the first of three, is completely new. Uh, had its premiere last night. It's by Kyle Davis, who's in the company. I want to say before I forget, after the program, Kyle will be down here for the post Q&A with Marcy Silman from KUOW and uh, Peter Bull. Once a year, uh, we participate in KUOW's series where they go on site to uh, interview artists. So Marcy will be here with Kyle and Peter Bull. So please do uh, feel welcome to come down afterwards. Also allows the uh, parking garage to clear out, <laughs> which is a plus. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to mention that before we went on. Uh, the second piece is uh, a new work for us from Alejandro Cerruto, who choreographed Little Mortal Jump. This is our third piece by Alejandro. And then a piece by Alexander Ekman, who is a European choreographer. It's called Cacti. It's new to us, but it's not new to the ballet world. I think we're about company number 20 to acquire this piece. It's a comic piece. It's a farce. And there aren't a lot of comic pieces, as we know, in ballet rep. So we've got another one. And uh, that's what's going to close the program. So I'll talk a, a little bit about each of these. I always hesitate with new works, and I've said this before. I don't want to say too much. I mean, I want to give context, but we all want to come to it on our own, of course, and make our uh, choices. I was just in wardrobe, which is just down the hall here, and uh, one of our uh, staff in wardrobe said her parents were here last night and they uh, didn't read any of the program notes so their perception of one of the ballets was completely different from what maybe the intent was but it was totally <laughs> legitimate to me I thought that makes complete sense so uh, you know these some of these works that are on the abstract side can mean many different things to us and uh, we might like some and we might not like others but that's part of the um, part of, the, I think, the joy and the interest in going to the theater and seeing how we all, uh, how we all respond to these works. Okay, so let's start with Kyle. Um, Kyle Davis in the company, he's been choreographing all along for our Next Step program, where company dancers choreograph on the professional division students and then present these in a program at the end of the year. Kyle's also choreographed for our school performance. Um, he's a graduate of North Carolina School of the Arts, and he's been back there on choreographic residencies and so forth. So Peter Bowl has now commissioned him to create a new work for our company. And Kyle's told me for many years how he really loves the music of Michael Giacchino, the film score composer. Um, if you watch Pixar films, you've heard Michael Giacchino. Uh, he won the Oscar for Up, uh, Inside Out, Coco, Incredibles but also the new Star Trek series. Uh, he did Lost on TV, and so he's really, he's one of the uh, go-to guys in Hollywood for scoring for film. And uh, Emile Deku had a connection to the Giacchinos, because Emile does a lot of work in film as well. Uh, during the summer, he spends a lot of his time back east in D.C., uh, and at Wolf Trap, uh, conducting orchestras for uh, live for film presentations. And the symphony does this now, too. The orchestra will pl play the score live. Have any of you gone to these? And they, they screen the film, but the music's live. It's fun. Um, so Emil contacted the Giacchinos. Michael Giacchino is managed by his sister Maria. 
and said, would Michael be interested in providing a piece for us, maybe something existing, maybe a, a, a younger work, an instrumental work, a short work that hadn't been performed much that, that he would be willing to allow Kyle to use for his ballet. Well, they got right back and said, well, actually, we have a 40-minute <laughs> symphony that uh, Michael wrote for a film, but he came at it a little bit differently. He wrote the music before the film was done at the request of the producers. Uh, usually the composer waits till a film is completely edited and the music is the very last thing to to be composed and added on. But in this case, the reverse was done. So Michael had written a piece that was uh, stood on its own as a symphony in about six movements. It was for the film Jupiter Ascending, which was not a very critically acclaimed film. It's 2015. I saw it on On Demand. Um, Mila Kunis and the guy from Magic Mike. That guy, anyway. I'm not really a movie buff. But anyway, uh, they sent this score, which is this epic score. It was recorded at Abbey Road in London with 100 players and a huge choir and children singing and just, you know, the works, big budget film. And uh, Kyle loved it. And he, I think knowing it was a, for a science fiction film, the idea of space and the solar system really took over for him. So Kyle's created a work and given us a, about a one-sentence program note that uh, essentially says this, this ballet has to do with the solar system and the birth of a planet. So that's the conceit behind this work. There are a number of sort of different characters in the work. Uh, there's a soprano soloist as well who's on stage way up high 12 feet uh, and uh, the orchestra in the pit and for our choir we have the PLU alumni chorus of course they've got choir of the west down there they have a great alumni choir as well they're up in the boxes on either side it's possible some of you were bumped from your box for uh, these shows there was a lot of question about where to put these 60 people because they weren't going to fit in the pit we originally thought we'd use 16 singers in the pit and amplify it. Um, that kind of thing is done a lot on film scores. You sort of doubled. You sing it once and they record it, then you sing it again, and then you sound like 32 people, and then you sing it again and you sound like more. Um, it's a less expensive way of getting a lot of sound. But uh, Michael Giacchino wanted a big choir, so they're kind of up there in the heavens, if you will. So it's a real literal surround sound. There's a lot of music coming at you in this piece. And Kyle's responded to this big score with a big cast. He's got 24 people. Uh, we have our protagonist, uh, Lita Biasucci, today. It's interesting. She alternates with Ezra Thompson in this role. Uh, and uh, also James Moore, who will come to it next week. Um, and then there are four... Uh, tall characters in uh, long uh, robe-like costumes. We don't really know who they are, and I think that's Kyle's intent, that we're not sure who they are, but they're definitely sort of guiding the, the journey, if you will, of this protagonist in the piece. And then a large corps de ballet that I think just represents elements in space. And Kyle's choreographed for these different uh, cast types in different ways. Some are in bare feet, some are in 
point shoes, some are in what we call technique or flat shoes. There's a lot of different style uh, going on here um, depending on who these different characters are. Uh, the rest of Kyle's collaborative team comes from within PMB, which has been a lot of fun for us. Uh, Elizabeth Murphy, one of our principal dancers, also has a uh, dancewear line that she sells on Etsy. Uh, it's called Label Dancewear. Liz makes all her own uh, dance clothes, all her own tights, uh, leotards and all. And she has begun designing uh, costumes as well. So Kyle asked her to come on as costume designer. So those are Liz's costumes out on stage. And uh, Reed Nakayama, who's one of our electricians, is the lighting designer and the scenic designer. You know, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of development going on in how to create a scenic design to complement Kyle's ideas. And it's kind of amazing what they, they come up with to create um, sort of wall and rock-like imagery without having real walls and real rocks um, out there. And, but as soon as you put light on some of these things that seem so unlikely, they can look completely different. So it was nice that Reed is both the scenic designer and the lighting designer because he has real, really full control of what that stage space is going to look like uh, to us. Kyle started choreographing this piece in August. Whenever you're at the in-house choreographer, you kind of get what's left. Uh, when we have out-of-town people, uh, they only have uh, they have finite finite number of days to work, so they get uh, first uh, first choice. But Kyle was able to slip in a number of rehearsals in August, then had to take a hiatus while we were in the Jerome Robbins Festival. Then everybody had a week off, and then he came back, and there were three weeks in the studio where he had to really hit it hard and get everything taught. Uh, it's a lot when you have a big cast and they're doing very different things. You have to come in with a really solid plan. But uh, got it together and uh, it opened last night. So it's quite a spectacle. Uh, don't be scared of the title. A Dark and Lonely Space. <laughs> Think Final Frontier. Uh, so again, Kyle will be down here. And you'll have seen the work, so if you come down, you can ask him a lot of questions about who is this and what was the, you know, is this is what I got from this, is that what you were going for? So uh, I'm sure he'll have answers. So that's the first piece. It's, it's, it's uh, a big ballet. It runs about 45 minutes, so be ready when you sit down. 40, <laughs> 45. And then we go into intermission. Then we come back to Silent Ghost, which is not long and absolutely completely different. Uh, this is a work by Alejandro Ceruto, and I'm going to give you some of my own impressions and uh, uh, just take them for what they are. Um, I think Alejandro Ceruto has a real knack for theatricality on a, on a very, uh, a very simple, simple and effective theatricality. Uh, he loves to put collections of shorter pieces of music together to create his longer works. And I think he collects these sort of as he goes along and as he hears things. He's quite ec eclectic. He listens to a lot of indie music or music that's been produced by independent, uh, lower budget um, labels, which often just tend to have a 
maybe a slightly less polished sound to them. In a way, something kind of natural, if you will. It was just sort of, I don't know, recorded in someone's living room in a way. I don't think that was the case, but it g sometimes gives that impression. But I think he makes very astute choices, and then he's able to group these pieces so they take us from one spot, one place to another or full circle or whatever he chooses for the particular work. I think with Little Mortal Jump he takes us from something that seems to me a little bit sort of cabaret and very um, intimate at the beginning of that work if you remember it the, it's just a couple dancers at a time very far downstage. I remember thinking maybe this would work better in a small theater. Maybe it's one of those pieces and I'm sitting so far away. But by the time we've moved through it, the whole stage space is used and opened up into something uh, much more wide and almost epic, if you will. And I was very impressed by his ability to to take my eye and ear to these places. I feel like he's done something similar with Silent Ghost, similar but different. Um, this is a very intimate work. Uh, there are sections for the all of the dancers, and there are often duets. There are two male-female duets. There's one uh, duet for two women, and they're very, very intimate, but at the same time not sentimental. And I think this is one of the... Uh, the successes of this piece. Very impressed choreographically at his style of movement. It's very fluid um, and he often works with a type of movement that to my eye looks like the dancers are moving in slow motion. Uh, but I think without a contrived effect. In this piece in particular I loved how he used the dancers heads and that may sound odd but they often touch heads together or one will sort of offer their head to the other, if you will, and that sometimes it's heads on the floor, but I've just kept thinking how he used the head seems so personal. So uh, if, you, if you see that, maybe you would agree with me. Uh, I also love how during this piece he'll have four, six, eight dancers just in a straight line right across doing the same thing in unison. That's the kind of thing we'd see a lot in 19th century ballet. I remember Alexei Rotmansky saying, who can do that anymore? No one can just put six people in a row and have them do the same thing. Well, actually, Ceruto's doing it, and I think there's something very effective and unifying about it, something quite satisfying, I think, to see. And that alternates with these very kind of personal, uh, understated duets. It's a short piece. It's a piece that when the curtain came down, I thought, oh, it's over. And uh, I think that's a good thing, too. Um, I, d I just really en enjoyed this piece. It's quite subtle. I think it sits in exactly the right place on this program because the pieces on either side are very unsubtle, and they're quite, uh, quite large-scale and overt. And here we have something quite... Uh, intimate and yet I s again I think it works in our large house. We have a big house for dance here. It's 2,900 seats but uh, he works also with a very effective lighting designer Michael Korsh and Michael uses uh, very specific lighting but it really fills it, it fills the stage in such a way that uh, it helps us focus even from a distance. So I feel like I'm rambling a little but uh, I, I enjoy sort of uh, being able to vocalize my thoughts on this piece, which I, I've enjoyed very much. So that is Silent Ghost, just 10 dancers. And then we come to Cacti at the end, which is new to us, uh, but has been around since 2010. None of these pieces are very old, and none of the choreographers are very old. I think they're all under 40. 
which now to me seems not old at all. <laughs> so, uh, this was a piece made by Alexander Ekman a little bit somewhat in response to criticism he'd received, written criticism from critics. Uh, critics that he felt were reading far too much into the meaning, if you will, of his work or of contemporary dance in general. So during this piece, we hear a voiceover that's intended to be a critic preparing to write a review of what he, it's a male voice, of what he's seeing on stage. And I think that Ekman is having fun with this and uh, is offering to us a critic who's trying really hard to, to make meaning out of what he's seeing. And Ekman teases him by putting fairly ridiculous uh, elements and movements on stage and seeing if he can bait the critic into taking them seriously. So that's part of the piece, uh, part of the conceit of the piece. Um, there's also a central duet in which that voiceover stops and instead we hear a repartee between dancers which might show the real sort of conversation or real voiceover that might go on during a duet uh, on stage where they talk about things unrelated to the dance or quite mundane having to do with the, the type of uh, choreography they're about to do. So there are those elements, but on top of that, it's kind of every, it's sort of everything but the kitchen sink. This Otto Newbert was saying at the end of this piece, someone needs to walk across the stage with a kitchen sink. Um, <laughs> the curtain goes up, and we've got 16 dancers on stage, and they're all seated on a little raised platform. Everyone has their own platform. Uh, someone writing about the piece likened them to Scrabble tiles, so they're on their tile. And uh, we also have a string quartet on stage. Uh, sometimes they're upstage, sometimes they walk downstage. They're some of our principal players and our concertmaster from the orchestra. Uh, they're playing uh, Schubert, Haydn, and Beethoven, but they're also uh, improvising on motives from these pieces. So some of it sounds quite contemporary, and then sometimes they come right back to the original, the original uh, music. The dancers join with them in creating music themselves with their uh, percussively, with their hands, with their voices, uh, with. Uh, non-verbal sounds that they make with snaps and uh, movements of the head and all. So the dancers are really participating. So on top of all these sort of conceits about critics or what my, pe dancers might be really thinking or saying to each other on stage, uh, there, there's a lot of creativity in how Ekman's put together the piece uh, in and of itself. Um, orchestra jumps in for about 10 minutes with a a very fast version of Schubert's Death and the Maiden finale. It's one of the famous string quartets by Schubert. It's been arranged for orchestra. And so that happens right in the middle. Uh, I actually participate in that uh, conducting, so uh, wish me luck. And uh, it's fun. Uh, so that's cacti. So those are three pretty diverse uh, pieces on the program today. And... Uh, I think we'll go ahead and open it up for any questions or comments you want to make. Uh, has anyone seen the program yet? Yeah, just a couple. Okay. All right. Uh, anything else I can... Well, one thing I want to point out, you're going to see Genevieve Waldorf with James Moore in the Potida in the duet in Cacti. Uh, Genevieve just joined the company last year. Um, and she was uh, picked by Ana Maria Lucasio, who's our uh, stager for Cacti. 
she was really interested in the really young members of the company. And so uh, this is Genevieve's first leading role. So she's great, uh, great dancer, also a Harvard student. So I don't know how, quite how that works here in Seattle, but there it is. And uh, she'll, she'll be out there with James Moore doing a great job. So you'll get to know a new uh, member of the company in a solo role today. Yes, please. How is it carried on once, this, once his choreography is set? Right. So a question about choreography and how it's, um, how it's written down or how is it carried on. Number of ways. Uh, most choreographers have some kind of shorthand that they use, some kind of notational shorthand. Usually not a formalized style of notation. There are a couple of those. But uh, usually some form of shorthand in which they'll write down the steps, the diagrams, the floor plans, counts. Um, video plays a large part in this today. You always had to be careful with video because there's usually a mistake that was made, whether it's a live performance or a rehearsal. Many of our rehearsals are videotaped so they can be reviewed by dancers or others after. Um, oftentimes, if the piece already exists, the choreographer himself or herself will not come to us to teach it. They'll send a representative that we call a stager, or more formally, a repetiteur, someone who teaches uh, the ballet. They're, and they're responsible for knowing every step and knowing about all the elements so that they can represent the choreographer. And in this case, it was a woman, Anna Maria Lucasio, who came for Ekman to stage cacti. So she cast the ballet, she chose the dancers, she um, taught every part, she worked with the musicians, she worked with the uh, lighting designer. Someone came in to set the lighting. And uh, so that's, that's how ballets are sort of transmitted. And she may have her own set of notes as well. I know Francia Russell had notebooks uh, in which she had written down in her own shorthand the many Balanchine ballets that she, she uh, would stage. Many of them as well, she really just held in her head and knew them, but it is a safety to write down uh, things at the time. Likewise, uh, when Anna Maria leaves, who's responsible? Well, one of our, our resident ballet masters who works for us full time, uh, is assigned to each ballet. So that person is responsible once the stager leaves. In the case of Cacti, it's Anne Dabrowski. So Anne will have her own notebook and her own notes, or maybe Anna Maria has left Anne a copy of her notes, plus video and so forth. So that's how we maintain these things. There can be variants, and sometimes when a choreographer work, comes back to a piece and makes changes, then sometimes they will send us the changes, and we'd like you to incorporate these changes into your, into your production. So that happens too. With the Balanchine ballets, Balanchine made a number of changes as the years went on. So depending which stager you have for a Balanchine ballet, there may be some differences. I know we've had Ruby's versions that are they're different from each other depending what era people learn the ballet in. So yeah, there's some fluidity, but uh, an, an effort at consistency. So, yes, sir. Have you conducted before? I've not conducted the PMB orchestra before. I've conducted singers a lot for about 30 years. 
uh, and I've done a lot of what we call session work, which is like film score session or video game sessions, um, but uh, not so much orchestral conducting. Emil's been on me to do some, and uh, without Alan Dammer on now, he asked if I'd do cacti, and I thought, I'm just going to do it. It's, it's, it's just under nine minutes. Sounds manageable. <laughs> so... But there is that added element with dance and that the tempo is extremely important, um, even within a few clicks of the metronome, um, you know, which a metronome is a consistent click and we really try and set it exactly and you have to hold it in your head. It's easy to psych yourself out on that. But um, it's fun. And I know the orchestra well because I usually handle their travel when they when we go places. So I I know everybody and they they're really nice. So it's fun. So, yes. The question about the sequencing of Kyle's ideas. I'm not sure about his own development ideas. I think that he did start with the Lita character. So I think he did start with, uh, if you would put the characters in a sort of hierarchy, I think he did start at the top and go from there. Um, because he, I remember him speaking about that early on. Definitely in the teaching process, the choreography process, he started with Lita and then moved on. There are sort of three central couples that do more classically based dance. He worked with them next. Uh, and then the four sort of separate, the tall dancers and the robes, they were worked into. But I think sort of went from the top down, if you will. And I believe that was his thought process too. He could confirm. Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, I noticed there's no director for the music listed for Silent Ghost. So I thought maybe you could try it. But there is no. <laughs> yes, uh, Silent Ghost is uh, set to recorded music. So no, uh, no conductor listed. Yeah. Yes. I, I missed someone up here. Yes. Yes, um, cacti is not particularly loud in any uh, part of the house. And um, the strobe light effect isn't your, the typical just blinking strobe light. There is a period of about 30 seconds in which two dancers on stage and the, the light changes with a strobe type of effect so it'll change and change so it's quite slow but the way that we the way that the strobe light appears to make the dancers move slightly is the strobe effect uh, the profanity is one mild word said very softly in the voiceover but the uh, marketing department wanted to be quite diligent to um, point that out I can't even hear it in the orchestra pit so you probably won't either but uh, I'm <laughs> I don't say profanity in public, but I think people would consider it mild. The first letter is B, as in boy. And I will say no more, but <clears throat> uh, it, it is meant in jest, I can tell you that. Um, yes, please. 
It's a good question. How is the budget set for a new work? Um, some elements can be determined. For example, once the music is chosen, um, rights and size of the orchestra and other elements, such as a singer performing on stage, have a set um, sort of fee uh, involved in that. Um, when you're working with sort of costumes, um, I think Leray Haskell would set this. It obviously helps to know the cast size, and you try and have some converse, early conversations, but you just sort of have to throw a number at it based on your experience. Fortunately, Leray has a lot of years of experience, so she can get in the ballpark. And then as they're working on the piece, the budget does make a difference. You know, there are some limitations about, say, types of fabric you could use or types of scenic elements. Um, you know, how much do we have to put towards uh, toward these scenic elements? Um, labor cost is a major element, too, in the creation of the costumes. The um, fabrics and the materials may not be so expensive, but it may be very labor-intensive, and likewise with scenic elements. So um, that's sort of how the different, uh, different budget line items are, are developed and then fundraising ra is done to, um, to bring on sponsors to commit to, to reach that goal. Yeah. But it is a, it's a lot of gray area. I mean, there's, the precision is always sought after, but uh, in creating a new artistic work with a lot of, um, a lot of elements, there is a sort of ebb and flow. So, yes. Alan Dameron's moving into semi-retirement, I think the word is, and uh, he's spending most of his time in Boston now. He's coming back to conduct some Nutcrackers and some Midsummer Night Stream performances in April, but he's not working in the studio anymore, and uh, and he's not here to say share the load, the conducting load in a in a mixed repertory program, so. Um, and those are big shoes to fill, uh, not only conducting, but I think really in particular a studio pianist is an incredibly uh, specialized uh, skill because not only do you have to play anything, whether it's an orchestral reduction of Tchaikovsky or Stravinsky, and that's no easy task, but you have to be adept at learning choreography well enough to know where to go in the score when they say, we want to go back to that pinwheel, and, and they'll say, okay, I'll give you eight before, and they just have to be able to do that immediately, learn how to mark their score. It's a real skill, and uh, we have a couple great pianists. Christina Siemens is incredible. Uh, she just brings a lot of skill to everything here musically. But um, finding that that skilled uh, person is uh, going to be a job. So we're missing Alan, but we'll see him next month for Nutcracker. This month, really. Sure, let's do one more. No, the orchestra has a union and they're paid per service and there is a set 
service for a section member and a set service amount for a principal and so on. Once you're on stage, a different set of fees kick in. Once you memorize music, a different set of fees uh, apply as well. The orchestra has a guaranteed number of services per year. Uh, which is usually met, but in the event that those weren't met, they would be paid for the guaranteed number of services. So there's many protections and uh, around the the job and the position and the the fees. Um, and it's a it's a standard type of uh, setup for orchestras. Uh, many we used to be AFFM, American Federation of Musicians, I think, but our orchestra decided they wanted to create their own union. And uh, they've done that, and it operates like an, any other larger uh, union. The dancers are part of the American Guild of Musical Artists and have their own uh, union contract. Likewise, the dressers have their own, and the crew has their own. So we've got four that we, uh, that we work with. So thank you. Um, I'm going to let you go because we're over time. It's great to have this discussion. I'm glad you're here to see these works. Please come down afterwards and enjoy the performance.